0: you will notice that I've changed the title. Uh, originally, you planned these things some months ahead. I, I, I originally chose the title Starting Out. Uh, I've changed it to The Time Has Come, and I'll explain why in a moment. If you have a Bible, uh, will you turn to Mark 1, uh, verses 9 to 20, Is page 1002 uh, in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the Pews. It's important to have one as we look at God's Word together. So do make sure that everyone has got a Bible in print. of them as we... Uh, study together some time ago I read an interesting incident uh, which illustrates the contrasting ways in which people from the west and the east view time Uh, an Englishman picked up an Asian friend in his car and as they were driving along he explained that he was going to take a shortcut to their destination and he said, in this way, we'll save five minutes. His Asian friend asked, what for? In our society, we focus on timekeeping and on time-saving devices. And time, we see, as a quantity. Minutes. How long is this sermon going to go on? Hours. Days, weeks, months years. In many parts of the world, however, and those of us who have had the privilege of living in other parts of the world, time is often much more regarded, not in terms of its quantity, but in terms of its quality. What do you use time for? In the Greek language, little Greek lesson, hope you don't mind, Uh, in the Greek language in which Mark wrote his gospel, there are two different words which are often translated by the one English word, time. Okay, here's the Greek lesson, but not the Greek letters, alright? There are two kinds of time. One kind of time, the Greek word is chronos, chronos, from which we get our word chronology, denoting time as a measurable period. The other word is the word kairos. I'm introducing you to a new word, kairos, which focuses on the significance of a particular moment or a particular period of time. And in this second book in the New Testament, Mark, the author, selects key Kairos events in order to tell his story about the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. These are key Kairos events because God is in them in a particular way. The divine author of this drama is orchestrating the actors and the scenes. And so, as we saw in our last study, after 400 years of Chronos time, in which the voice of God through the prophets was silent, and scripture also, a voice is suddenly heard. A voice of one calling in the desert, as John the Baptist bursts onto the scene of national life. And as the prophets had promised, John comes to herald the way for the imminent arrival of the king. And then, verse 14, in your Bibles here, verse 14, his work complete, John is removed from the scene, from the action. Notice how the NIVR translation in the Pew Bibles translates it. It says, John was put into prison. It doesn't actually say that in Greek. It says, at this time, John was delivered up. The passive. Yes, he was put into prison, explaining it, but behind the scene, John is delivered up, emphasizing that behind the human agency is God's hand. And now, at this point, John removed from the stage, as it were, onto center stage comes the king. It is the Kairos time for the entrance of the king. Look at verse 14 and 15. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time, the kairos has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. In the Bible speaks today commentary on Mark. Recommended, there's a lot of good commentaries on Mark. Donald English writes, Not all the time ticked out by our clocks and watches. is of equal value. Some minutes are filled with extra meaning. Jesus says that God is now filling the time of the beginning of his ministry with immense importance. All the centuries of preparation and prophecy are reaching their fulfilment. This is a time heavy with eternal significance. Now before this proclamation of Jesus, before Jesus emerges publicly on the scene, Mark relates two other key events which are of great importance. The baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And these are necessary preparatory steps before he comes onto the scene. A bit like if you've ever done any acting beforehand, uh, you, you get yourself ready in the dressing room and they put on this horrible grease paint and stuff. I have done it occasionally. Um, and, uh, and finally, you're all ready to come on stage. And if you like, the Lord Jesus Christ is being prepared, finally, For his entrance on center stage. So, that's all I want to look at this morning. These two aspects. In verses 9 to 13, preparation. And then in verses 14 to 20, proclamation. Alright? That's where we're going this morning. First of all then, preparation, verses 9 to 13. Uh, Mark in his Gospel not only omits uh, events about the early life of Jesus like his birth and his boyhood which Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke and John include to some degree, but m- what is interesting about Mark in his Gospel, and it's, let's remember it's Mark we're studying here, I'm not preaching on the harmony of the Gospels, I'm trying to explain and see where is Mark coming from in this particular Gospel. Mark also abbreviates the events that he does include. And the baptism of Jesus and his temptation take just five verses in our version. In our text. And Mark does this. The effect is to heighten the pace of the drama. There's a kind of rhythm to this Gospel of Mark. If you... If you read it through in one stretch, which probably most of you haven't bothered doing, but I would recommend that you can read it quite quickly. Read it through, and what you'll gain is a sense of acceleration. One of Mark's favourite words, especially in the first half, is a Greek word which means immediately. Everything happens immediately, at once, without delay. The translators in English keep changing it around because it would seem to sound funny just to say immediately, immediately, immediately. In fact, the, the action accelerates for the first eight chapters, which occupy most of the ministry of Jesus. And then it slows down, the the drama slows down for the final week. In fact, someone has calculated that if you take all the incidents recorded in the first eight chapters, which are the first three years of the life of Jesus, you could compress them into a fortnight. It actually took three years, and then it all slows down. So, look at what Mark tells us about the baptism and temptation of Jesus, and how these two events Well, they're preparing for public ministry and Mark is demonstrating to us that Jesus really is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. First of all then, the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 to 11. Some of you have studied this in your small groups and some of this you will also be studying this week. So this is kind of a a message that bridges two studies. But what he says, interestingly, in relating the story of the baptism of Jesus, only Mark tells us where Jesus came from. Not just from Galilee, he says, but what he says, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth, in Galilee. And you ask yourself, especially if you're a first century reader, which we're not, why does he mention Nazareth? If I could put it in kind terms, it would almost be like saying, in Edinburgh, at that time Jesus came from Nidri. Morningside, Yeah. Nidri, maybe not. <laughs> if you know Edinburgh. Jesus came from Nazareth. Why well, mention Nazareth? When it was a place with no historical significance in the Old Testament whatsoever. In fact, John relates in his gospel, you may know the story, that uh, one of Jesus' first disciples, a man called Nathaniel, his friends tell him, we found the Messiah. Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? John one forty six. It's not that Nazareth had a bad reputation, it just had no reputation whatsoever. Not worth mentioning. Which is why Mark, I think, mentions it. Shocking his readers by reminding them of the seemingly unpromising origins of the Messiah from Nazareth. Human opinion would say, well, that's not important at all. It's also clear as you read the rest of the Gospel accounts that the the very baptism of Jesus is very hard to understand to the early Christians. You see, John preached, as we saw last week, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here is the sinless Son of God being baptised. Why does he need to be baptised when he's not a sinner? Uh, Matthew, in his Gospel written for Jews, of course, uh, relates how John the Baptist tried to deter him. And John says to Jesus, this is all wrong, you should be baptising me, not the other way round. And Jesus says, Let it be so now, for it is proper to fulfil all righteousness. Matthew 3.15 And and the baptism of Jesus is a symbolic act in which he identifies with sinners and with sinful people. It pushes us forward to the day when Jesus, when he dies on the cross, will become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 I think it is. So, His first act of baptism is to submit to the Father's will. Now, although all that is true, it's not what Mark highlights in his Gospel. What does he highlight? What what does he mention of importance? His focus is on what happens when Jesus emerges from the waters of baptism. Look at verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, the Jordan is a significant place in the history of Israel. At this very river, it parted the way when Joshua led the people of Israel over. This is the river that Elijah the prophet struck and the waters parted and and his his protégé, Elijah, likewise. But significantly, when Jesus comes to the Jordan, it's not the Jordan that opens. It's heaven that opens. Heaven is torn open Isaiah the prophet said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64 verse 1. And that prayer is answered. One writer says, All heaven is let loose. And from heaven comes the voice of divine approval. Heaven and earth meet as the Messiah, the anointed one, is anointed not with oil, but with the Spirit who descends on him, not with the power of wind or fire, as someone like John might have expected, but with the gentleness and peace of a dove. Perhaps there are echoes of the dove. You remember the dove that Noah sent out of his ark that finally brought the news that the flood was over, the waters receding, and that God is making a new start with mankind. And the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, signals his approval of his Son. Notice incidentally here the Trinity we have here. The Father commending the Son and the Spirit being given. The Father's voice says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now again, if you you know the Old Testament there are echoes right back into the history of the people of Israel. Maybe even back as far as Abraham. You remember when God said to Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 1, he said, Take now your son, your only son, your beloved son, and offer him as a sacrifice. But there are two clear references here. One is to Isaiah 42 verse 1. Isaiah was a prophet who foretold the coming suffering servant in that reference says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring peace to the nations. And Psalm 2 verse 7 is an enthronement psalm. The psalm, psalm uh, enthroning the Messiah who is the king. Psalm 2 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, all the promises of God find their fulfilment. This is the heavenly affirmation. All that God promised is being fulfilled in Jesus. He is the servant who suffers. He is the king who reigns. He is the servant king. But it's an assurance to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry of the way that will lead to the cross. The king must die in order to be exalted. And while the other gospel accounts mention that John the Baptist also heard the voice, and and even maybe some of the crowd, we can't be absolutely clear, what Mark emphasizes is it was Jesus who heard the voice. He needed that affirmation. As he begins his ministry, he needs to know that he has the Father's approval, and that his Father is happy with what he's doing. It's a wonderful moment in his experience. Right at the beginning, he needs this. Now, this is a unique event as is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Nonetheless, as Irish prayed for us, in a wonderful way, we too can know what it is to be called and become the children of God. And we too can know that we have the Father's approval, the Father's blessing upon us. You see, this morning we all do sorts of different activities and we wonder, is my life worthwhile? Is it any fun being a mother in today's society? Is it any fun working in standard life day after day doing my job week. is it any fun being a student I, I mean does it really count not fun I mean you can call some of those things fun but is my life does it have any significance do I matter to anybody now the wonderful thing is if you are a Christian and you are walking with God you are following Christ whatever you are doing you have the Father's approval you are my child whom I love With you, I am well pleased. And if you've got that, no matter what anybody else thinks about your life and how it counts, no matter that the world looks down on mothers who stay at home, just for example, and I'm not saying all mothers should stay at home, I'm just simply saying our world says, second-rate job, wasting your life. If you have the Father's approval, then that's all that counts. And some of you are going through tough times, I know that. Some of you feel your life is insignificant. But if you're a Christian, you have the Father's approval. In his first letter, John writes, 1 John 3, verse 1, How great is the Father's love for us. Sorry, authorised version. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Now you might say, how do I get into this family? Well, here's the wonderful news. At the end of his Gospel, when Jesus dies on the cross, Mark records, using the same word, as he uses here, that the veil in the temple, the big heavy curtain in the temple that separated sinners from a Holy God was torn apart. It's the same word used as heaven being torn apart. When Jesus died on the cross, heaven was opened. And becoming children of God is possible. And not only that, when we come to faith in Christ, when we put our trust in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven, sends his spirit from heaven who's poured out upon us. And we become his children, not just by adoption, but by nature as well. And the God-given symbol of this change, of status, a change of nature, is baptism. Our theme is following Jesus. And so surely we begin where he began, with the enormous privilege of following him through the waters of baptism. And above all, as we start out in our Christian lives, we need that affirmation of the Father's love, his commendation, that we are walking in his way, even though we may not understand more than the one step we are taking at this time. It's not an easy road. And we see this in the second step of preparation. After the baptism of Jesus comes the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus, the next significant kairos moment in the Gospel accounts. And Mark again stresses how immediate it is. He says, at once, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Into the wilderness. But notice what he says. I misquoted. He didn't say at once Jesus was led out, as Matthew and Luke do. He says at once Jesus was sent out into the desert. The Greek word is a very strong one. It means to drive somebody out. There's a sense of compulsion about it. And what Mark is emphasizing here is this is no mistake. You know, Jesus had this wonderful experience of baptism and then unfortunately the next thing that happened was he had to face Satan. No, he is under divine direction. Sent out. And while he would challenge disciples and us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Jesus deliberately seeks a confrontation with the enemy. The old commentator Cranfield comments, while other men must avoid temptation in so far as they can this man must voluntarily seek it out and take the offensive and the place that is chosen for the battle is what the new testament calls the desert or the wilderness probably the southern region towards the dead sea when we think of desert or wilderness we often get the wrong idea we think oh how wonderful it's a place of solitude you know where you can get away from the crowds and just sit and meditate and have a peaceful time no The wilderness, the desert, symbolically in the Bible, is enemy turf. A place associated with demons, uncontrolled forces. It is a place of testing for Jesus for 40 days. The place and the number, we don't have time to look at it. Again, have Old Testament echoes of Moses, 40 days on the mountain. Elijah, 40 days going to the mountain. The people of Israel, 40 years wandering in the same region. But the Lord Jesus Christ is meeting the enemy, as we would say, on his home turf. Mark also tells us something interesting that none of the other Gospels tell us. Mark tells us that when he was in the wilderness, he was with the wild animals. Again, you have to stop and ask, why does Mark tell us this? What's the significance of it? I have to be honest, nobody's absolutely sure. Some people think this is a kind of reversal of Eden. And you know what the prophets foretold, the, one of the readings we read at Christmas in, in uh, Isaiah 11, you know, the wolf lying down and all that kind of thing, and the leopard and the lamb together, and that this is a sign that, of the reconciliation of a fierce animal kingdom. In the first century, apparently there were bears and wild boars and hyenas and jackals and even occasional leopards and lions in this region. I'm not sure that Mark is making that point, but the point he is making is that wild animals are subject to Jesus. And at the opposite end of the scale angels, heavenly beings, serve him. Most crucial of all, it's important at the beginning of his ministry that he faces the enemy head-on and wins this decisive first battle against the arch-enemy, who's called Satan. The word literally means accuser. One writer describes Satan as the ruler of an organized empire of evil, the prince of this world, from whose control men are totally unable to free themselves. Now again, Matthew and Luke describe in detail the temptation. They tell us the three different temptations that were thrown at Jesus and the response and strategy he used. But Mark simply makes the point, this is a necessary part of Jesus' preparation for his ministry after his baptism. At the outset he needs to face the enemy head on and win the battle. A first decisive Encounter and victory. And as we go through Mark's Gospel, we'll see how Jesus encounters lesser minions, the demons, who are subject to him and cry out and recognize him. And finally, at the cross, Jesus triumphs through the cross. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians 2, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, although Christ has triumphed, Satan is a defeated foe. Nonetheless, he continues to oppose and accuse the followers of Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're a Christian, that every step you take of obedience to Christ, you will face the enemy. Those of you who have been baptized in this church will know that as part of our preparation for baptism, I always tell people the same thing. If you are planning to be baptized, be prepared to be attacked in one sense you can say, well it's just a symbolic act yeah, but it's an act of identification with Christ, it's an act of obedience and people always come back to me, nearly always and say, you know I'm glad you told me that I had the most terrible week leading up to my baptism I had problems in that, I never just came out of nowhere, and, and the week afterwards I've had real difficulties why? because it's nailing your colours to the mast, it's, it's saying who you are And when this happens, we need to have assurances. The Bible says basically we have two assurances when we're tempted. Uh, The first is that the one one who is with us knows what we're going through. The book of Hebrews particularly brings this out. Uh, That Jesus intercedes for us. It says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And the second is that we can share in his triumph. John writes in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, 1 John 3, 8. And then he says, through the Holy Spirit within us, the one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So having received the Father's commendation, triumphed in his confrontation with the devil, Jesus now is ready to come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We see that in the second half of our passage, in verses 14 to 20, proclamation. Jesus proclaims, preaches, announces it's the same word used of John in verse 4 this is the Kairos moment for Israel and the world announcing God's kingdom. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Now, if you've ever studied the Bible you'll know that an awful lot of ink has been spilt and many trees have been felled to try and tell everyone what the kingdom of God means and I don't intend to add to the process this morning, but simply to make two points which may help us. First of all, the kingdom of God Or the kingdom of heaven, because Matthew in his gospel uses heaven rather than God, because as a Jew he didn't like to use the word of God unnecessarily. The kingdom of God is not a geographical region. I I first went abroad overseas in mission service to Nepal in 1972. And, And Nepal is a kingdom, it's the kingdom, the royal kingdom of Nepal. It's a geographical area to the northeast of India. But when the Bible talks about God's kingdom, or the kingdom of Christ... It is not a geographical area, a realm, it is a rule. It is God's rule in the lives of people. So Jesus calls on his hearers to respond to God's kingdom, to his rule. How How do you respond to God's rule? Well, you repent, says Jesus, and you believe. To repent is a radical turnaround in your life, a change of direction. You turn from going in your own direction and way, and you turn to Christ. And you trust in the good news of Christ. You commit yourself to Jesus King. You say, I'm not going to follow my own way anymore. Jesus is my Lord and King. I am following Him. However, although Jesus is the King, as we read the Gospel, we discover the Gospel account, we discover that not everybody bows their knee to Jesus. Not all people acknowledge Him as King. In fact, many of His own people, not least the religious authorities, will not accept His authority, despite the evidence And finally they reject the king, and they cry to Pilate, the Roman governor, we will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. And that is still the case today, for people still do not acknowledge and recognise that Jesus is the king. They still refuse to repent and to believe the Gospel. And that is the challenge for us, for the message is still the same. We live in the Gospel age. The demands are still the same. Repent and believe. However, as people respond to the message, as individuals repent and believe, so the kingdom of God advances and spreads, one person at a time. So Jesus urges us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we have the assurance that one day, As the last book in the Bible, Revelation puts it, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So, the kingdom that Jesus announces is both present, this is the second point, and it is also future. The present day is the day of opportunity, the Kairos time to respond while we can when he comes, that opportunity will be lost forever, which gives it the sense of urgency. So Jesus begins his ministry of proclamation, announcing God's kingdom, and finally we see calling his disciples. The region around the sea, or more accurately the Lake of Galilee, was a crossroads, where competing civilizations met and clashed. But more significantly, it was also the place that the prophet Isaiah had promised, he said, God will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Again, Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 9. He promised that God would bring through Galilee this message that would bring light to those walking in darkness, a new day's dawning to those living in the shadow of death. So Jesus first announces his good news in this region. Walking along the lakeside, if you've been to Israel, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to go to, and uh, although they've changed a lot of things, and the tourist industry's taken over, they can't change the water. thankfully. So uh, the lake is still the lake uh, and much of the seashore as well and the first people Jesus calls to be his followers are fishermen, two groups of brothers pairs of brothers Simon and Andrew, James and John uh, fishing was a thriving industry on the lake uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian who used to be at uh, one time as the governor of Galilee uh, actually reports that there were 330 boats plying their trade on the lake of Galilee at this particular time and now in those days disciples usually chose their teacher. They heard someone preaching and they attached themselves to him. What is interesting with Jesus is that he takes the initiative. He calls his disciples, his followers. What is surprising is the kind of people that he chooses. These are very unlikely choices. Fishermen, from Galilee of all places, unsophisticated. Yet there was and is a purpose in him calling such unpromising people. The Apostle Paul states this when he writes to the church in Corinth, who were also a similar uh, ragbag of people from the dregs of society. He says to them, brothers, he says, "Think Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the things that are not despise things to nullify the things are so that no one may boast before him and Jesus still though not exclusively calls such people to follow him you may not have a good background you may have a checkered history that doesn't exclude you from following Christ in fact God delights to take ordinary people unpromising people because then no one looks and says ah well I'm not surprised that person did that because they're so wonderful capable Intelligent, handsome. When God takes someone who is ordinary, unpromising, unintelligent, it demonstrates his power all the more clearly. The treasure in jars of clear as the Apostle Paul puts it again in 2 Corinthians 4. It is not so much your ability that counts, but your availability. And we see this with the response of each of these four men, as at once, without delay reports, Mark, they leave their occupations and families and follow Jesus. Now, this is a momentous step for these young men. Probably in their late teens or early twenties. Leaving behind family businesses that probably go back generations. However, using language that they would understand, Jesus offers them a higher calling. fishes of men. Now, once again, Mark has compressed the facts. If you put together different gospel accounts you'll discover that in John's Gospel, these men met Jesus sometime before. Some people think up to a year before they were following John the Baptist and John redirected them to Jesus. And so this call that Mark reports is sometime later. They would have known something about Jesus. But what Mark is emphasizing here is where we began. For these men, this is a decisive moment in their lives oh they've been there year after year probably since they were small by the lake of Galilee they've been there mending their nets casting their nets fishing on the lake but this today this moment is God's Kairos moment when Jesus walks beside the lake and individually and personally says come follow me and they immediately responded Now, I've almost finished, but let me say one final thing. I want to suggest something to you. Who knows that in God's goodness, this morning, here in Charlotte Chapel, January the 25th, 2004, that this may be your Kairos moment. A moment of eternal significance for you. Or you may have heard about Jesus like these men had in the past. You may, like them, have shown some interest in Jesus. Been familiar with him. But today, personally, he comes to you and says, Come, follow me. It's never the case for all people. One of the interesting things about being a preacher is the effect that a sermon can have on different people. And different people can say, that message that morning was God's word just for me. And another 700 people will walk out and say, yeah, that was interesting, that was good. But it, it was not a significant moment for them. Sometimes when God rose in revival, then it is a significant moment for everyone. Would it be so? But God speaks individually and personally. Maybe you've been to Charlotte Chapel. Maybe you've been to Christians Explored maybe you know about Jesus now and you've heard about him maybe you've grown up in a church and then God comes to you personally and he says come follow me it may not though it may mean leaving your family and career but what it will mean is putting Jesus in first place in your life there is always a cost to following Jesus that's what our verse is all about for the year and he would come after me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But there is no higher calling. There is no greater fulfilment than to follow Christ and be equipped by him and used by him to serve others. One of the questions people often ask me is, if you weren't a pastor, what, would you, what else would you like to be doing? And i scratch my head and say, Nothing the greatest privilege of all. That doesn't mean that your job is any lesser but for me it's a great a wonderful privilege. There's nothing I would want to be doing. But whatever you're doing, there is nothing more fulfilling, nothing more important than responding to Christ and following Him wherever He leads you. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and God has been calling you literally to leave all and to follow Him and to serve Him. I don't know, some other part of the world and you're weighing up the options and weighing up the cost, what it means. And this morning maybe is the Kairos moment for you. But I want to speak to those of you who are not yet Christians. You're not yet real followers of Christ and this morning He says to you, come, follow me and I simply ask you what is your response and I plead with you not to miss the moment some final verses from 2nd Corinthians 6 Apostle Paul says as God's fellow workers we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain for he says in the kairos the time of my favour I heard you and in the day of salvation I helped you I tell you now is the time the kairos of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. May it be so for someone here this morning. The day of decision. The moment. When you respond to Christ and follow him. We're going to sing a hymn that really continues to focus on that before we close together.